The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for all that you're doing among us, all that you're doing in our church, in our lives. Uh, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it is timeless, that even for this weird and ancient and wonderful story, uh, that it speaks to us today. So we pray, God, that by your spirit that you would be our great teacher, uh, that you would forgive the sins of, of this teacher, Lord, that, um, for they are many, and that you would uh, bless this congregation, that we would uh, continue to grow in our own personal and intimate relationship with you, with you through uh, your word. So, Father, be our burning bush today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Heard a uh, quote today. Uh, I have a friend in Birmingham that texts me uh, most Sunday mornings. It's really a neat little ministry that he does to me. Uh, I don't know if he does it to any other preacher friends, but he texts me a, a, a scripture verse almost always. Today was the first day. He, he did a scripture verse, but he also sent me this. It's a quote from Tim Keller, who I, who I have quoted many times. The Bible is a history of God offering His grace to people who do not deserve it, nor seek it, nor ever fully appreciate it after they, after they have been saved by it. Read that again. The Bible is a history of God offering His grace to people who do not deserve it, nor seek it, nor ever fully appreciate it after they have been saved by it. So, we are uh, going through uh, the Essential 100, and we have made our way through what um, that particular uh, um, um, commentary, Whitney Cunyaholm put it together, what he thinks, what he views as the essential passages in Genesis. Um, I felt like going through Genesis, it was, there was a lot of it that I wanted to go back. I mean, so maybe, maybe next year we'll do Genesis uh, as, and go a little bit more slowly through it. Um, but we, we, you know, Genesis is the first of the five books of the law, right? The Torah, um, or the Pentateuch. Either one of those words is great to describe that. You know, what, are, what are, off the top of your head, you know what the five books are? Genesis, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You all are Bible scholars. Fantastic. Um, can you spell Pentateuch? No, just, uh. yeah, yes, good. All right, so what we saw, in, as we looked through Genesis, we saw creation, right? God spoke it into being. He blessed His creation. He saw that it was very good. God being in relationship, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And then Genesis 3, we see that relationship broken. Uh, God uh, continues to bless, uh, but the relationship is broken. And as the crown of creation, humanity, breaks the relationship, creation begins to unravel uh, a little bit. And so we saw in Genesis 4 through 11 um, the consequences of the fall, the uh, sinfulness of humanity. Humanity is stained and cannot reach out to God. And so uh, the rest of the Bible is this narrative of God reaching out to humanity. And so that begins in, in Genesis chapter 12. We saw Abraham, God reaching out, calling him. Abraham gets up from where he is and goes to the land of Canaan, takes his family, all his livestock and servants and everything. Um, and then we saw uh, this is the, the beginning, the headwaters of, the, of the God's plan of salvation, which is not uh, legal. And um, He does give law much later. In fact, we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But he, uh, it is, first of all, relational. So we see Abraham, the miraculous birth of Isaac, the strange narrative of Jacob and Esau, then Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph uh, down in Egypt, and the family 
finds its way down there. Uh, Joseph, they're reunited with Joseph, uh, incredible story of grace, and the family settles uh, in Egypt. And that is where we pick up uh, as we begin the book of Exodus. Now, we're not going to spend too much time. I think we spend three weeks in Exodus. I have to go back and look at my schedule. Um, next week, we'll talk about the Exodus. And the week after that, we talk about the Ten Commandments, but, um, but the, uh, which is an, all very important. Uh, because we're asking, how does the Old Testament fit to us as Christian Scripture? Uh, we are Christians, and a lot of it, that seems foreign. God seems weird. God seems unchristlike sometimes. And uh, what does it mean? Isn't that contradictory? So we're hopefully, hopefully answering some of those questions. So as Exodus opens up, we, chapter 1 really is the context for Moses and his life. Uh, we see that there, we, we get the names of the, the sons of Jacob who moved down, all 12 sons. Uh, then Joseph died, his brothers and all that generation, they all die, as, as people do. And then, um, verse 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful. I'm in chapter 1 of Exodus. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, even though he is not mentioned, what we see is that God is continuing to bless his people. It doesn't say that God made them fruitful and multiplied them, but they... They actually were living into the initial commandment of God, be fruitful and multiply, right? It is not that God just happened to pick Abraham whose line would be hale and hearty. Uh, It is uh, what we are seeing is that God is blessing uh, His people and really preparing, I think, for this standoff, this standoff on a cosmic scale with the superpower of the day, which was Egypt and Pharaoh himself. So, um, so God is even here blessing him. And then we have this, uh, the next verse is also a very contextual uh, verse. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So that's, that's a very sort of ominous indicator from the author of Exodus uh, who, is, uh, uh, who is telling us that uh, things have changed in the relationship. Whereas in Exodus, I mean in Genesis, Pharaoh was just in love with Joseph. Had a sort of a man crush on Joseph. She gave him anything that he wanted. And um, now we have a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. And we see as we read through the narrative an increasing tension, an increasing uneasiness within Pharaoh about the size and the strength of Israel. Now probably it is a succession of Pharaohs. Because we, act, we know that actually once the time of Moses rolls around, we're about 400 years that they've been in Egypt. So it's not just one Pharaoh. There were Pharaoh uh, Joseph's Pharaoh died, and another Pharaoh rose up, and, and then that was Moses. That's, it doesn't read like that, but there's, just a, there's a long several generations and this growing nation that is clearly... There, but they are, don't belong there. They're, they're outsiders. They've maintained their ethnic identity or their familial identity. And they have, um, and, and there is this concern, this fear, fear-based concern. It doesn't say that the Israelites gave reason for that concern, but there's this fear-based concern. 
if they get too strong and somebody comes to attack us, they could join in and we would be overrun. There, it's strange to me. And I, you know, I didn't live in that day. I don't know what the cultural norms were. But it's just strange to me that they didn't just go and make some treaty or make some pact or um, say, hey, look, look at the land, of, uh, the land that we've given you. Uh, what, what can we do to make this relationship stronger? But there was, no, there was, it was fear. It, there was uh, also a very strong ethnic identity within the Egyptian people uh, as well. Um, so what Pharaoh does, and again, I, we don't know exactly where this is in the, ge- um, I mean, the uh, chronology of it. But the, um, they set taskmasters over the people. And they, really, they were heavy-handed. They were, oppressed them. And the Bible says the, the, says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Again, that is not an, there's not an overt reference to God's hand, God's blessing. Uh, but nevertheless, the people seem to be doing okay. God's hand is with them. So they put them in slavery. They actually not just oppressed them, but they actually took them in, made them to be slaves. Bitter and hard service, uh, it says. And then what he does, Pharaoh does, is he tries to get the midwives to kill the sons. Uh, the sons of the Hebrew. Now, that is a strange policy to me. Because then they wouldn't, ha- eventually they wouldn't have slaves anymore. But he's trying to incite fear. He's trying to rule over them in a way that beats them into submission. Um, and soon, when the midwives, they're actually faithful, and they say, oh, the, the Hebrew women, they're vigorous. They're more vigorous than the Egyptian women. They have the babies before we can get there. And they're lying to Pharaoh, which is pretty amazing. And God blesses them, uh, the scriptures say. So then, Pharaoh just demands that all Hebrews kill all their sons, when they have sons. And this would have just, this would have, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, this has just been awful. Human nature, this is, again, is just saying that, that human nature is broken. What Pharaoh is doing, and capable of doing, as a human, although he sees himself as a god, what he is doing is just, obviously it's awful. But we see it again, don't we, in Scripture? We see it in Herod. We see that, um, that when there is a threat, rather than welcoming or aligning himself with this potential new king, Herod um, says, we're going to kill, all, just to make sure, all the little boys, two years and under. And so, actually, what we see in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew is there's a lot of uh, Moses, or I should, maybe you should say new Moses, new Moses imagery uh, for Jesus. And, uh, and maybe we'll spend some time on that uh, next week. But, but it's just um, Jesus really is seen in, in large respect as, as the, the prophet who takes Moses' place. Moses is the lawgiver, which we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. And Jesus is the grace giver. But he stands in that place. So, um, so there's this, chapter 1 ends with this tension, this awful scenario, this terrorist scenario that says, all of the, um, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So, that's, that's the context for Moses. Now, chapter 2 begins, and Moses is born in the midst of this edict 
that all sons shall, shall be murdered, thrown into the Nile. And Moses' mother keeps her, keeps him as long as she feels like she can keep him hidden. But there comes a day when she just doesn't feel like she can keep him hidden anymore. She, in, rather than casting him into the Nile, she entrusts him into the hands of God and puts him in a basket that she, that she sort of um, you know, puts a tar in the bottom so it'll float and won't let in the water and puts him among the reeds and just kind of just says, I'm going to trust you, God, to take care of my boy. And, um, and you know, it's a pretty neat story because right then, uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes down and she uh, he finds the baby and says, oh, this is one of the Hebrew babies. And then Miriam, who is Moses' older sister, comes and says, hey, I know a woman that can nurse this child for you. And of course, that's their mother. And so the mother, Moses' mother, gets to keep him until he is weaned and then gives him back. And he becomes, as the movie says, the prince of Egypt. Right? So he's just in, growing up in that royal household within Pharaoh. Uh, he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And, um, and she, it's Pharaoh's daughter, it seems from the scriptures to me to say that it's Pharaoh's daughter that names him Moses. And she says, for I drew him out of the water. So, and the name Moses in Hebrew sounds a little bit like the word to draw out. To draw out. Now, isn't that interesting? Because what would Moses do? He would draw his people out uh, of Egypt. And, and iron, ironic, isn't it? That Moses uh, was named by the, the daughter of Pharaoh, and Moses would draw the people out from Pharaoh. So it seems, and we're not told here how old Moses was when he had grown up, but actually Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, remember Stephen, he's the first martyr, and Stephen, before he's martyred, he gives this speech, and he kind of goes through, it's it's definitely worth the read, and he goes through and talks about uh, the the salvation history of, of Israel. And he says Moses was 40 years old at this point. Now, Exodus doesn't say that. That was, I guess, their tradition. Uh, So Moses is a a grown up. He's in his 30s or 40s, 40 years old. Uh, And he seems to be having some sort of, um, I wouldn't call, I don't know if I could, a midlife crisis would, would maybe it's too strong. But he is wondering about his people, right? He is. Even if he's, I mean, if he's 40, that would kind of make sense. But he's, he's, he's wandering among his people. Why is he doing that? He's, he's wanting, wondering, is he looking for his, his mother? Is he wondering who these people are that he came out of? He, he's obviously, he knows he's not Egyptian. He, um, he knows that these are his people. And it's interesting the detail that we're given in this. It says that when, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So he's feeling some guilt, right? He's in the palace, and they're out there being oppressed. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He, so interesting. he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now that's pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Um, he, he, you would think that he would have the authority as one growing up in the royal palace to tell the, this Egyptian to cut it out. And, and he would have had to obey him. But he takes the law, in fact, he takes the judgment of God into his own hands and murders the guy and buries him. 
He goes out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews are fighting together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? So uh, one's bullying the other. And he answered, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you did to kill the Egyptian? So now Moses gets afraid because he thinks, I, I looked this way and that, but apparently I didn't, I didn't see everybody because word's getting out. Now Pharaoh finds out about it and Moses takes off. So Moses takes off. I drew this little map right here. It's not much of one. Uh, this area, this is Egypt. You can tell by the pyramids. Um, I don't know if you can see this. This is the Red Sea kind of forks up here. Incidentally, they probably crossed right about, when they did cross, probably crossed right up in there. This is the Sinai Peninsula. This is Mount Sinai right down towards the bottom. And it says that he fled all the way to Midian. We don't know exactly how he got there, but he, this is where Midian is. Midian's on the far side of the Red Sea. I don't know if you can see it on, on this side. Um, Israel's up here, of course, Mediterranean. But it's interesting. He must have been, to me, and I didn't like do a lot of research on this, but he must have just been, to me, on the east side of the Sinai Peninsula because he's actually watching the uh, flocks that belong to Jethro, who is the priest of Midian and becomes his father-in-law, when he comes to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. It's the same mountain that he's going to get the Ten Commandments upon. And that, that is where he's shepherding his, the flock. And so it, you, you don't usually lead a flock across a, a big sea. So I, it's hard to... I guess he's probably on the, the, just the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula is where he goes to. And he, and he um, comes to this... He sees seven daughters and they're uh, watering their flocks and he helps them and he actually runs off some people who are trying to um, harass the girls and uh, ends up marrying Zipporah. Uh, who is uh, one of them. Incidentally, uh, my uh, boss at Church of the Advent, Frank Limehouse, who I've mentioned many times, uh, he had a dog named Zipporah and um, named after this. And I had a golden retriever named Moses at the same time. That was... Um, it was. It was interesting. Yeah. We, we, they never got together. Um, and... And they, ha- and they have a son, Moses has a son named Gershom, and we ne- I don't think we ever hear, maybe just once or twice he's briefly mentioned, he, he and Zipporah pray- play virtually no part in the story. But we know that he had a descendant. It is very important, though, however, that, that uh, one thing I forgot to mention, at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that a man of the tribe of Levi, so, had Mo- so Moses is of the tribe of Levi, and leave, the Levites become the priestly tribe. They're the ones who do not get land in Israel, later, way on down the road. They don't get land in Israel. All the other tribes have to give them a portion of their land because they're going and they're taking care of the temple. Why? Because they're Moses' line. And actually Aaron, his brother. So, uh, the, that's, that's the Levites. So what I really want to do now is I want to just work through chapter 3. Because, again, Stephen's speech tells us that Moses is about 80 years old now. So we've, we've been 40 years. I looked up. I wanted to know where Midian was and what the land was. And i got to tell you, I sort of pictured Mount Sinai. I've, really, I've never been there. Some of you may have been there. I've never been there. Um, 
I've never look, even looked at it on a map until yesterday. Um, and I mean, I, you know, the map in the book, the, the back of the Bible is one thing, but I looked at it on Google Images, Google Maps, and that place is completely barren. And the mountain is in the middle of a bunch of other mountains. So I've always pictured the people of God kind of walking through this flat desert and coming up on this mountain. But they would have had to traverse all these crazy mountains. I'm getting ahead of myself. But anyway, you'll guide me. Thanks. I'll need that. Um, So Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So this is 40 years or so. That means Gershom is like in his mid-30s, right? I mean, at this point. Um, he and Zipporah are getting along, although 80 years then isn't what it uh, is now. But um, it, he, he was working for his father-in-law. And um, I hope that's not offensive to anybody. Is that offensive to anybody? I don't mean, mean that to be. Um, there's this long period of waiting for Moses. Long period of shepherding sheep and of raising a family and a long period of being in a foreign land uh, where he, when he had grown up in the palace. This incredibly dry, arid, mountainous, nothing land when he had grown up in the fertile Nile Valley. And Moses probably just thought, this is what, this is, I mean, years, decades. What we see at the end of chapter 2 is that during, just a little more context, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now that when God remembers something, it's not like He had forgotten it, right? It's just He's, he's it's coming around. It's, the time has come. Um, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Isn't that an odd way to say that? God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew what He was going to do. God knew their suffering. God knew where the where He was in His plan. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, and he came to the west side of the wilderness, to the mountain of God, to Mount Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. It's a funny thing for Moses to say, and I will turn aside to see this great sight. Today, I think we would say, what the? Yeah, so, I can't even imagine what a, what that would look like. A bush that is on fire and yet is not consumed. It, it is, it is strange. I mean, it, it, of course it's strange. It's strange then. It would be strange now. And, when the Lord saw that he turned aside, in other words, the signal worked, right? God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. I mean, that would be so weird. He's out there by himself with a bunch of sheep and this 
bush is on fire, but not really, sort of. And this voice, here I am. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And that is the right response for a number of reasons. One, because God, anybody who comes into the presence of God knows that God is just too magnificent. He could not, there's a level of holiness that it, he would have literally, he ought, though the bush was not consumed, Moses ought to have been consumed. He hid his face. If I look upon God, I will be consumed. That's an appropriate response. We look at Isaiah, we look at Jeremiah. Anytime, uh, even Peter and James and John, they think they're, you know, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, part of the significance of that is that they don't, they're not consumed when Jesus reveals His glory. Uh, when you come into the presence of God, uh, you're, all, you're face-to-face with holiness in a way that you never realized, and He hid His face. But I wonder also if Moses hid his face from God because he hadn't hung out with God a long, long time. He's been hanging out with the priest of Midian, his father-in-law, uh, who is supportive of God's of Moses' mission uh, under God, but he was not a, a Hebrew. So he hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, "I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt." In other words, God doesn't waste any time with. Oh, Moses, don't feel bad. Oh, let's talk about the shame that you feel. Oh, let's talk about the fear that you're feeling. God just looks right past that and says, let's, we got work to do. Let's, let's go. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the otherites. Um, this was the promise. Right? This was the promise to Abraham. This is the promise to Isaac and to Jacob. It's going to be 400 years, but they're going to come back. And, and, and God is saying, I'm good for my promise. Generations have died without seeing the, fruition, the promise of God come to fruition. And just because you don't see the promise of God come to fruition doesn't mean God is not working. And I take great comfort in that. I, I, there are many times where I, I, I wonder what in the world God is doing. I mean, whether I'm looking at the news or I'm looking in the mirror or I'm looking at my church family or I'm looking at, you know, whatever it is. What are you doing? And the fact that I can't see the end of the, the story doesn't mean that God is not working. It's been a long time. And God says, "Here I, I'm here. I'm good for my promise. I'm going to bring them back to the land that I promised. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people and the children of God out of Egypt. Now this is... The, not the first time we've seen a calling. Right? Remember we, we heard the calling of Abraham. Abram. And God said, leave the land of Ur, 
go to the land of Canaan. He said, okay, and he got up and he went. That is not Moses' story, right? Now, I don't know which one you're more like, but I'm a little more like uh, Moses, and you may be too. Moses, I mean, God says, come on, let's go. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh uh, for me. And Moses says to God, uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'm a shepherd. I left that life behind a long, long time ago. And isn't it interesting? What God says is not, oh, Moses, uh, you're actually so much better than you think. You actually have untapped potential. He doesn't say that. What, how does God answer Moses who says, who am I? But God said, but I will be with you. It's the same thing. Jeremiah says, uh, he says uh, when he's called, he says, but I'm just a boy. And he said, don't say I'm a boy. I will be with you. He doesn't say, you're, you're actually a great public speaker. He says, I will be with you. And this shall be, this, now this is a terrible sign. This shall be the sign for you. And you think, great, I'm, there's going to be a shooting star uh, you know, or something. That I'm, I'm going to word this. This is the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Great. How do I, I've got to do all this, and, the, and I'm not going to get affirmation until I end up back here with two million people? Come on, man. That's, that that would have be, been really hard. And Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, <coughs> Excuse me, that the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's the name of God. You remember in John's Gospel, there's several, seven actually, sayings where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. John, as he's going through these I am statements, John is declaring the divinity of Jesus based on the name of God given right here at the burning bush. So God gives the whole plan to Moses. You're going to go to Pharaoh. It's not going to go well. There are going to be a lot of signs of wonder. You're going to plunder the people of Egypt and, we're going to, and you're going to walk right out of there. And I'm going to have victory. But that's still not enough because Moses says they, they're not going to believe me. I mean, Moses has no faith in himself and therefore cannot have faith in God. Or maybe it's the other way. He does not have faith in God and therefore he has no faith in himself. But either way, and I don't know which way it goes for you, but either way, I think the right order is if you have faith in God, then you can have faith in yourself. But Moses has neither. Moses is terrified. Now here's the thing, if you, you might think, if I had a burning bush I, and I would know what God wanted me to do, if I, if I had something like that, when you get a burning bush, the calling is awful. It's terrible. This is your burning bush. You know, you can know what God wants for you right in, in the pages of Scripture. Now there may be other ways that God speaks to you, but it is always important to... Um, not to sensationalize or over-spiritualize things, but to see if they stand up to the test 
of Scripture. It's really important. God's not going to call you to something that actually um, contradicts Scripture. Very important. Moses says, they're not going to believe me. And so this is... Moses... uh, God asked Moses a very important question. I'm in chapter 4 now. What is that in your hand? I heard a well-known preacher once say that that is actually the second most important question that God asks of us. Right after, what have you done with my son? The question is, what, what are you holding on to? What's in your hand? What are you leaning on, grasping at for security? It's a really, it's a really important question. And he said, throw that staff on the ground. And he threw it on the ground. And it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. I would rather go to Pharaoh than pick up that snake, personally. (laughs) But he was a shepherd, so he probably knew how to do that. that they may believe in the Lord, that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So he's given them signs. And still Moses says, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So maybe he had like a, a stutter, a speech impediment of some kind. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. I mean, he he is not going. I mean, just kicking and screaming. And who can blame him? I mean, there is a sense in which when God says to go, you should go. And there's a sense in which when you know God has said it, you... You're right to be afraid. Moses was going to learn, and he was going to do very, very well at trusting in God. But it did not come naturally. And what's amazing is that, again, I've said this before about Noah. I mean, God could have just wiped him out. Nobody would have known. He would have been a smudge on the side of Mount Horeb, and he'd move on to somebody else who said yes. He could have done that. He... Why did he choose Moses? He chose him because he chose him. There was nothing special about Moses. Why has he chosen you? He chose you because he chose you. Nothing special. I mean, you're you're special, just like everyone else. You know, like so. Um, it, it is um, it, it is so wonderful because if God chose you based on your um, merit, on your character trait, because you're really good looking, uh, and you cease to be good looking then does you know does God cease to love you no he chose you because he chose you he chose you because he's God he didn't chose you because based on you he didn't choose Moses based on Moses and that is um, that is the great comfort I think of this this passage and Moses is not equipped and yet God doesn't call the equipped he equips the called 
And so whatever it is for you that God is calling you to, you can first of all thank God that He hasn't actually given you a burning bush. But second of all, you can go in confidence. The answer isn't, oh yeah, you're great. You're really good at this. The answer is, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's the answer. That's His promise. In fact, He, you have what Moses did not have. He has put His Holy Spirit in you. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So, that's what we got for today. Next week we see Moses goes, Ten Commandments, Passover, Exodus in 40 minutes. And then the next week, Ten Commandments. So, each one gets four minutes. Yes. Maybe the five issues of reluctance on Moses' part wasn't part and parcel of why God did not let him into the promised land. No, his God, reluctance, his, his reluctance to obey immediately. Uh, God is very specific that he, he is um, the reason he's not allowed into the promised land is because he is uh, does not show faith when he taps the rock twice. Well, that that scripture. Not that I know the mind of God, but Scripture never itself draws that connection. In a sense, you think that you're held accountable to God, and, and when put that in the context of extraordinary grace on the cross, but that he, he sort of separates his pre-calling life and his post-calling life in that sense. Susie. I have a question. Is It seemed like every time God... I'm not going to say supposedly disappeared from his people when there was a gap between them. They grew apart from him. He knew that was going to happen. That was a 400-year period. Why so long? I couldn't begin to give an answer. And Susie asked, uh, why so long? And all I can say is that he had told Abraham it's going to be 400 years. I, I, I don't really I don't have an answer for why that is other than to prove his covenant faithfulness I, in, in the end. What do you say to those people who lived in that 400 years? That's between them and God. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. God's timing is God's timing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All right. I got to go to church. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll be back here next week. Um, I don't know what breakfast is going to look like. If you bring your pets to breakfast, that could get messy. I hadn't really thought through that, but I'll still be here whether you have pets or not. Okay.